Driven to Fail is part of the Haggerty Podcast Network. A goal is a double-edged sword. On one hand, it's hard to get anywhere if you don't know where you want to go. On the other hand, it's entirely possible to have a successful life without landing the one thing you've wanted forever. Now, does missing a goal like that make you a failure? Of course not. But it can change how you see what you did accomplish. Around 30 years ago, in middle school, I discovered a book called The Stainless Steel Carrot. It tells the true story of a racing driver once known and followed by thousands. John Morton got his start sweeping floors for the legendary Carroll Shelby, but he always wanted to get to the top, to open wheel, to Indy cars, possibly even to Formula One. Now, Morton made it to open wheel for a bit, but he didn't really see the top. He did, however, win SCCA championships and the 24 Hours of Le Mans twice. His time racing Datsun 510s and 240Zs is widely held up as the reason why America began to take Japanese performance cars seriously, and one specific race at Laguna Seca in 71 is still held up as one of the most emotional and consequential events in motorsport history. In spite of all that, Morton doesn't really seem to understand why he means so much to so many. He just seems to wish he had done more. In this podcast series, we examine what happens when things go wrong in the world of cars, what we learn when we fall down, how we use that knowledge to get better, and how getting back up helps make us who we are. I'm Sam Smith. I'm a journalist and a club racer, and I love stories. Welcome to Driven to Fail. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for being here. This is... We were we were talking earlier. I am a giant nerd. I have a copy of Sylvia's book sitting on on my desk. It usually sits on my bookcase. I've read yep. it a zillion times. I read it in middle school a zillion times. I'm a beast sedan dork. I'm one of those really annoying people who you probably have talked to a thousand times over the past forty years because of those little cars. But I want to start with with something else. Um, we met, so we met very briefly at Laguna Seca this year um, during a, a vintage race weekend this fall. Mm-hmm. You were being honored there. Your Datsun 510 was there, the BRE car. A mutual friend was kind enough to introduce us. And one of the things that she told me later was that you, you sometimes find it odd to process what your time in certain cars means to people. And she said that you, you sort of view your career as kind of having, you know, fizzled in certain ways, which I found absolutely amazing because that's ridiculous because it, you know, it didn't, but as Alana put it, you know, she said you were, you were literally the guest of honor at a vintage racing event, with your car on display, which means people remember you, which means you didn't fizzle at all, but we all have these moments of insecurity, right? Where we have to tell our, we have to, where our friends have to tell us that we're being ridiculous how how do you how do you look at what you've done and have that moment of "Mm, well you know I didn't quite go where I wanted to it must not be a thing how does that work in your head in my head it works that just like you said it's just you know I I you devote your whole life to something and when it's over I mean I'm it's pretty much over I'd still probably run a little nothing race maybe now now and then but for the most part it's over and then you can get a perspective you is this where you wanted to get to or did you fall short or you know but the, the only time the only way you can do that is to get it to be old you know old enough that you can look back on your life with some perspective 
and it's a compilation of compilation of everything that happened. And you, can you say, was it enough or, you know, I had the interesting thing at Monterey, the race you just talked about. Um, I had an autograph se session and I'm sitting next to Mario Andretti <laughs> and next to Mario Andretti is, uh, uh, What's his two-time world champion? Um, I don't draw. I don't. Mika Hakkinen. Mika Hakkinen. And on the, my left was Peter Brock. <laughs> and I think, what are we doing here? <laughs> Not so much Peter, but, you know, I had a funny feeling. What am I doing sitting next to Mario Andretti? And uh, and funny thing happened recently. Um, I did one of these things sitting exactly where we are yeah. with... Uh, Justin Bell, and he did me. He had his all of his equipment, and I didn't have to do anything. It wasn't I? Don't think there was a computer. It was face to face, yeah. and uh, I think he did me because the next week he had to go to Nazareth and do Mario Andretti, and I was practice. <laughs> I was cannon fodder, <laughs> but you know it came out really well. I I haven't seen it, but I think it worked. That's I mean, it, it's so funny, right? Because, you know, there, there's an old line that goes something like comparison is the theft of joy, right? But anybody who's ever been an athlete, you have to compare yourself. And, and it's, it's dangerous when you, when you look at racing because there's so many things that factor into it, right? It's not just mm -hmm. you. It's not just the car. It's not just the yeah. day. It's not just the team. It's not mm -hmm. just luck. And yet on some level, everybody comes back and goes, well, you know, I, I'm not Mario. So I, you know, I, what did I do? It's nothing, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it must be, it must be a strange moment. But one of the other things I find really interesting, you know, it, even in spite of everything you just said, you, you have these amazing moments in your career where, you know, you didn't say no, you got a shot, you stepped up and you took it. And, you know, for people who don't know, so you grew up in the East Coast and you wanted to get into racing. So you dropped out of college, you headed to California, you went to Carol Shelby's driving school. And this is a pretty famous story. And it's, it's in, it's in yeah. the, uh, the Shelby American book you wrote, which is another great book. But at the end of the school, you get ballsy and you go up to Carol and you ask for a job. The guy's basically like, here, kid, take a broom. And this is in that golden age of that place, you know, around the Cobra and the 50 and the Daytona Coupe. And, and it led to you being offered this, this drive at very last minute at Sebring in a 427 Cobra. And you basically show up, you're, you know, you, at one point you said something about, you know, you're going to be the night watchman. Car gets damaged, they repair it. Ken Miles goes out, comes back in. There's nobody else to go in it. You get in it. And you're like, you know, the way you write about it is just like, well, okay, hell, and you get in it and some of it goes well and some of it doesn't. You're driving around Sebring at night, but looking back on stuff like that, those moments where, you know, in retrospect, there's this ballsy kid taking a shot going, well, screw it. Do you, do you look at that and wonder who was that guy or is it still feel like you? I mean, how, cause we, you know, we, we process risks so differently as we get older, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> It's, it is me. It was me. And I, I can identify with that person. Um, and I, I never have been ballsy in that way. I just, you know, it's what I'm supposed to do. So I do it. Um, and I was given a, a goofy, goofy opportunity to drive that car. And that was the first time I'd ever been in a professional race. And it's the first time I'd ever driven a car that wasn't a Lotus super seven on a racetrack other than 
in the Cobra Coop. I mean, the Cobra, um, you know, the prototype I went to the school in, which was far from a, a healthy Cobra. Although it did sell for $13 million later, <laughs> about five years ago at auction. Um, you know, that race had a tremendous effect on me as I look back. Um, it didn't, it really didn't lead to much. I don't think I did get to drive on the Cobra team a couple times with miles and, uh, and the reason I got to is because Carol Shelby happened. These are just happenstances that happened in my life. Like Shelby coming out to test with Billy Krause, the first Cobra at Riverside during the one week I went to his school. And, uh, so I asked him for a job because I was going to turn around and go back to Illinois, which is, you know, Midwest, not the coast, but yeah. near Chicago. And um, so that was happenstance. And that my instructor was Peter Brock, totally happenstance. Because um, I never, I didn't know Peter Brock from the man in the moon at that point. And then I happened to be, I'd raced for a summer and I'd come, I went back East. And when I came back to show, this is all it, you've read all this stuff, but Shelby went out to Willow Springs, which he never did. I mean, he did when he, if he was racing as a driver, but he had no reason to go to Willow Springs, except he wanted to see Ronnie Bucknam and evaluate him uh, because he was going to give him a ride on the Cobra team. And I almost beat him in my Lotus and I was the janitor, <laughs> actually uh, almost the janitor. So that's that's why I ended up getting to drive for him at all. And that was total happenstance. And he came out to watch Ronnie Buckman and he saw me. Yeah. We, we'll go back a sec, right? So you said I'm not, you said something about not being a ballsy person. You just do what you have to do. But on some level, you have to know that jumping into a, 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 a big block Cobra, 427 Cobra, at a professional race at Sebring, no less, right? There's an yeah. element, like a lot of people wouldn't do that, John. <laughs> I mean, you know that on some level, that is that is a ballsy thing to do. You may not think of yourself as a ballsy person, but like how in that moment, you know, they say, all right, get in the car here, you can get in the car. Did you want to, or was it just- I, I was scared to... shitless, to be honest. <laughs> I really was, <laughs> but was I had what to was... do it because how could I say, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah, And they had to have a driver because Miles needed relief. He had cracked ribs from the accident. Yeah, And it wasn't like I was being a benevolent. Uh, <laughs> uh, it wasn't that I was being benevolent. I did it because Shelby asked if I could do it. And yeah. I said, yeah, I can. You know the track. Yeah, but I didn't know the track. <laughs> but I didn't care. I, you know, but that race is one of the most momentous races I've ever had in my life. Even though I drove around for several hours with a car that was failing and finally blew up. Right. But, um, you know, it was an initiation. What, how, okay. So you, when you got in the car, I don't remember, sorry, I don't remember. Was it dark? I want to say it was dark. No, right? no, it was okay. uh, probably three and a half hours into the race, three okay. hours into the race and miles, Every other car had two drivers. Miles entered was entered in that car with no spare because the year before the Cobras were breaking so 
regularly that the drivers just switched around. It didn't matter if that there was a two drivers per car. Yeah. So uh, the, nothing broke. All the team cars were running perfectly and uh, miles needed to get out and they needed a warm body to get in. And there I was. So, so wait, so if you're scared shitless when you got in the car, I mean, how long did it take for that to go away? It had to go away, right? I mean, it's a race car. Like, yeah, no, I've cars, started right? having, I've started enjoying it. How, how long? A lap in? 10 laps in? What? Well, not a lap because the first lap I spun to, it, on two <laughs> different corners that I'd never <laughs> seen. But no, and I'm going to say five, six laps, seven well, laps. I started well, feeling. Through, sorry. No, I started feeling Eddie a little more at ease, even though the car was an awful car. <laughs> I mean, what, it was what, a wreck. What, it was a bad car that was wrecked. Repaired, right. Yeah. What went through your head in those spins? Do you remember? Yeah, I remember thinking, you know, they they don't have any idea what my first <laughs> lap was time was going to be. So no big deal because they couldn't see it. You know, yeah. it was in the back. It was on the part of the track that they don't use anymore. It's just defined by hay bales in the out right. on the runway. Right. And uh, I thought no, nobody's going to know, and they didn't. <laughs> I had to tell them. Which, on, on the one hand, you're like, okay, yeah, it's his first pro race, and yada 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 at Sebring, and on the and on the other hand, you think it's the factory Cobra team at Sebring, and you're in a 427, and you're at, and this is like it's just. When you start thinking about what's happening, it's a it, the variables start to get funny. Yeah. So, so one of the one of the interesting things about you know I've talked to a lot of professional drivers, both active and retired, and one of the interesting things about them is that you know they all, on some level, you know, if they become well known for something, and and so many of them do, right, a particular weekend, a moment, a record, they all end up having this this regular life outside that because racing drivers are not the kind of you know even all the way up to you know Hamilton and 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 current F1 stars there's always some place in the world they can go and just be a person and where they're not signing autographs and you know sedan drivers you know in America race drivers are not celebrities and you you have this massive career you know you you raced from your time at Shelby all the way up to the turn of the century you know basically from cars on treaded treaded bias plies all the way up to, you know, Le Mans, you've won the runoffs twice, you have class wins at Le Mans, you had this, this long and varied career with multiple high points. And yet, eh, you're one of the few drivers that people tend to remember for a very specific moment. And it's that it's that Trans Am race at Laguna. It's it, it's held up as one of the greatest races in history. And you've talked about it probably a zillion times. And you know, all the questions by heart, we don't have to go to it here. But when people bring that up, does it ever feel odd? Do you ever, do you ever think on all of the other like remarkable things you did in a race car and wonder, why can't we talk about that? <laughs> why, why not all the rest of it? Yeah, I mean, no, I do. Because that's, I think a lot of people, especially the Datsun people, and, and you're a Datsun person, I guess, kind of. And the thing about Datsun people is most of them don't know much about racing. Yeah. They only know about Datsuns right. and they know about, I mean, I don't mean Nissans. I mean, Datsuns, they know that period and they don't know. They probably know who Sterling Moss was, but they don't have a, 
intimate knowledge of racing. Some of them probably surely do, but the most part, it's that period in their in the racing history that they focus on. And I do too, for the simple reason that I was, that was a high point for me. Yeah. It was one of the, one of the highest points, but it was not the highest point. It was looking back. I'm proud of what happened on that team and uh, with the runoffs and the, the Trans Am championships. And yeah, I'm, I'm proud of that, but I raced a lot of Porsches too, and Ferraris and Jaguars and, and some Indy cars and sprint cars. So. It's, I mean, it, it's funny, you, you know, I'm, I'm a Datsun person, but I'm mostly a history person, right? You know, I spent a bunch of time at road and track mm -hmm. and I spent a bunch of time at other car magazines. I love all of it. Um, and, and the B sedan stuff is, is interesting to me for what it was, but BRE is compelling in particular, particular because of the people, right? The cars are great. 510's a neat thing. All the B sedan stuff's neat, right? 510's, 2002's, GTB's, they're all cool. But BRE in particular was just this neat little collective of this, this little bubble in time that came out of, it came out of a, you know, all this, but, but people may, some people may not, that it came out of Shelby's shop and how, you know, Shelby basically stole a Toyota racing deal out from under Pete. So Pete backed up and went Datsun. And then the Datsun arrangement ended up being what everyone remembers the team for, but the people are, are remarkable. You know, it, it, it's you of course, and, and Pete, but also guys like, you know, Trevor Harris, who designed the shadow Can-Am cars and Mac Tilton, we found Tilton Engineering, which you know, ended up being brakes supplier to everybody from club guys to Formula One. And, and just this huge moment where all these people were in the right place at the right time. And they ended up making this, this huge dent in the culture before going on to do other things. And the, the team disbanded in, it was 72, right? Uh, yeah, the end of 72. The last race the team ran as a, as a team was the Baja 1000 that I so, drove with Peter Brock and at the end of 72. Which, which is this, this really cool thing. We, I, I, I want to ask you a thousand questions about that. I have to shut up that voice in my head for, but so, so when the team disbanded, you know, talk to a lot of people who've done remarkable things in their lives. And they always have this moment where they do the remarkable thing. They're like, okay, cool. That's done. Now we move on to the other thing. Everything else is going to be just as remarkable or it's going to keep getting better or, you know, at a bare minimum, this is, this is what it was. This is where my life is now. Did when that, that whole thing came apart or not came apart, but when it, when it kind of shuttered, did anybody else in the team or you have, have any feeling that it was, that there was a moment that something great was ending or was it just move on? And do you look at it differently now, I guess? No, I can, but I can look back on what I felt at the time. Yeah. And, uh, I still feel that way. Um, I, that was a team like you mentioned the name Trevor and Mac and, and, uh, John Caldwell, John Nepp, um, and some others were an incredible people who went on and did other things too, were very successful, but this was their first major success, I think, or the, the high point of their lives up until that point, And certainly mine too. Um, <laughs> the thing I regret is it, I hung around in 73 working at Pete at Brock's cause I needed a job. What were you doing? Just 
stuff, nothing stuff. <laughs> uh, we weren't racing. Peter had uh, put in a, a, a proposal to Schlitz beer uh, to run a 5,000 car to, to, and buy two Lolas and run in the 5,000 series. And I, I was certainly, I was very up for that because that's really what I wanted to do at that time. And it fizzled. I mean, they, they didn't, we did, they, Peter didn't get the money and he got, I think kind of, well, distracted isn't fair, but he started getting on that hang glider kick. I still <laughs> resent hang gliders <laughs> for that reason, because it that was kind of the end of VRE. Yeah. And the thing that I regret more than anything is that with the notoriety I had, I had a lot of notoriety at, at this two years of the Trans Am and the at, at national championships, because we we're racing against the best yeah. of the club racers, Sharp and Tullius and Scoville. But that I couldn't put something together after that. How lame is that? Because I, lame, I, John? no, it's lame that did, I, I couldn't just it, move into it, you know, talk to, yeah. I remember one time, uh, the end of, uh, the last second of the last race of the 72 season, we had obviously won the championship and I won five races and I beat all of the guest drivers, including Allison. And, and, uh, I mean, I, he was a great driver and a, a good friend, a good, and, a uh, I was in a car that I knew like the back of my hand and these guys are put in it and they didn't, you know, they were, except for Peter Gregg, they were easy to beat, but they <laughs> wouldn't have, if they put me in the Coke Chevy, Allison's car, <laughs> I would have been really easy to beat too right, right. for him. Uh, but um, this, you know, I'm the one that won the those races, and there's a Can-Am team, a Shadow Can-Am team, Don Nichols Shadow team. I don't know if yeah. you're familiar with it. Of course, yeah. The, Trevor, um, yeah. the guy that got a chance to drive a Shadow was Bobby Allison. I said, <laughs> "What about me? I beat Bobby <laughs> Allison." <laughs> And, and and I didn't beat him in a you know a hair a fire breathing right. car like a NASCAR car or an Indy car. I beat him in a Datsun. Um, so he got the the chance to drive the and then drive for Penske. And why didn't I fault my own personality or really? or my own? ability to make things happen for myself. I just wasn't good at it at, at so, that facet. So I, you mentioned, you mentioned Pete and, and hang gliders. I, I, I know him a little, uh, I got to know him a little bit when I was at road and track and over breakfast one day, he gave me the whole story on, on how the hang gliding thing happened. You know, he went down to the, I think it was the beach in, in LA and he saw guys, you know, leaping off the dunes and yeah. got into it. And then all of a sudden there were, you know, he was making them and then there were distance records and guys in snowmobile suits going up in the high desert, you know, for hours. And, and, and I just found it really interesting because he talked about walking away from racing, just like, mm -hmm, yeah. And, and so much of, of so much of this book, so much of carrot is, is Sylvia talking about how and painting pictures of how focused you were and how driven, how badly you wanted to be in open wheelers and how, you know, how in so many ways, even then it was becoming clear that it may happen. It may not. And, 
how how did your how did your head work when you realized you started to, to realize that those doors were shutting? Because again, like you had a you know a couple decades of significant career after that in sports cars and prototypes. You know the the Group Forty Four Jags that you mentioned. You know the, the, the nine thirty five at Le Mans. You were vipers at Le Mans. I mean, big stuff. And and yet that that never that door was shut. You know how. Was it easy to, when you realized that that door was shut and the open wheel, the path was kind of closed or did it always just kind of linger? How did you look at that? Um, the way I looked at it was I just did whatever I could do. And then that, I drove Indy cars yeah. I, and I drove Indy cars that were not very good cars. Right. And, uh, and I, you know, it's part of my resume. I drove Indy cars, but I never won any. I, I did win an AIS race in an Eagle, but I, <laughs> I wasn't really an Indy car driver with any regularity. Yeah. And I would have preferred that over what I did do, but that didn't work. But the reason it worked at all is because somebody asked me if I'd drive their car at the Long Beach Grand Prix. <laughs> I mean, I didn't solicit it. I didn't go out to try to get a ride. I, it just fell in my lap, that ride. And then uh, then I was going to run that car at, at Indianapolis, but I had to do the rookie test. And uh, they didn't have it ready early enough to do the rookie test. It was a, it was a good car. It was a, like a year old Eagle, but it was a, it was a good car. So they stuck Steve Krisiloff in it because he was already qualified. I mean, he was already an IndyCar driver and he tried to qualify the car and he probably would have, but he crashed and broke his leg in it. And, uh, and then I drove for jet engineering and, did some races for them. They, they really weren't competitive. And so I don't know for sure if I'd have ever been competitive. I think if I'd done it long enough with the right team, the thing about the BRE team that I think has been the most important thing for me um, is these were really good people. They were really yeah. the best and they were all friends of mine, right. good friends. And they didn't want anybody else in the car. And they knew I was the best. In their minds, I was the best. And that, you know, kind, kind of gives you confidence. It gives you a lot of confidence. Um, and I've never been on a team like that again. Were, so, you, were you ever convinced you were the best? Or was it just enough that they, they believed in you? I, you know, I... <laughs> Some drivers those... have to believe, right? They have to know they're the best, period, even if that I know uh, I don't think I ever knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I want I had the pole in every race I ran in 1971. Yeah. And I never entered a race that I thought I'd win. <laughs> that I really said, I got this one covered. <laughs> and I did a lot of them. I a lot of them I did have covered. I was gonna yeah. be able to win, but I, I, I never went into a race thinking I'm going to win this. If I didn't know better, I'd say you had a Jewish mother like me. God, you sound like the voices in my head. I'm not very good at anything, anything really. I'm just not, I'm not going to, I can't, I'm not good. 
Um, I was good. I'm not saying I wasn't good. I was, I was good. I was good enough not to quit and do something worthwhile with my life. But you realize, (laughs) you realize how, how rare that approach is, or maybe you don't. Right. I mean, again, I've, at this point, I've probably talked to dozens and dozens, more than a hundred pro drivers. And, and so many of them talk about how they get the car and they have to, you know, it doesn't matter whether they know they screwed up or they know the car is working or they know, you know, what's against them. They have to, you know, they put on the helmet and they close their eyes and you look out, out, out the windshield and you think I am the absolute best in this grid and it's, it's just going to happen. So many, so many people have to like, that's how flow state happens. That's mm-hmm. how they, how they get themselves there. What you just said is I've probably heard one or two other people who have driven professionally say it. It's rare, mm-hmm. man. It's, remarkable but. yeah well i've i've been at races usually long time ago i mean closer to the bre period maybe even before and maybe a little after when i was yeah. just hanging on by my <laughs> by my knuckles to try to uh, continue doing it working for the mean and a menial job um and still trying to race but this is before bre yeah and um I used to say, I'm the best driver at this track. And I probably wasn't, but I I tell myself that. And I probably was in in a lot of cases because these were, this was club racing. And that's what I fell back on because I didn't have enough money to go, you know, to run, I ran the USRC and tried to in my, my own car and it didn't, it, it, I couldn't stand out because yeah. I didn't have a good enough car and I didn't have any money. Right. But I used to tell myself when I was in those conditions, under those conditions, I'd tell myself, well, I'm better than all these other guys. I tell myself that I don't think I necessarily believed it, but yeah. One of the, you've, you've alluded to this a couple of times and, and, and you, you know, you mentioned something about it earlier too, but one of the things I find really interesting about your career and the way you talk about racing is that you're, you're just, blatantly honest with it. You know, you talked about being not very good at, at, at selling, right. You know, which now these days is if you can't sell, you're not in the car, nobody gets in a car on merit anymore, unless, you know, you're Juan Pablo, right. Like they're, it's a handful of people. And even then, you know, they're not, it's dicey, but so many, there's a quote, there's a quote that I wrote down. I was looking at at, at carrot a couple of days ago, just kind of researching for this and thinking about stuff. And the, the middle papers are it's all you know photographs with little little captions underneath mm-hmm. one of the one of the captions there's a picture of you in actually the book the cards on the cover the, 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 the yeah that, car, that's right? the carrot yeah right yeah. so yeah. There, there's a there's a quote underneath it that uh, forgive me i hate having my words read back to me but i'm going to do it to you because i've got <laughs> <Okay>. mike um, <laughs> but it's you said I got a feeling for the kind of inertia that the car and I had at that speed. And I realized that if we came into contact with one of those trees, we'd be reduced to a pulp. And yet, you know, you've, you've, you've alluded to risk a little, and yet, you know, there were moments where you drove significantly faster stuff. I mean, a, a 935 is not, even the late ones, you know, the Kramer cars are not safe cars. Like a, you know, a, a group C car, people died in them, you know, and, and people were still getting hurt at Le Mans on up in the nineties and you were running there. Like, how did you, you, you are not the kind of guy, and you do, forgive me, you do not seem like the kind of guy who can simply tell a voice in your head to shut up. And so much of what's in Carrot is talking about 
you know, how you process stuff and how you thought about stuff. And especially how you thought about drone insecurities and safety and a thousand other things. Mm-hmm. How did you, as you kept driving faster and faster things, how did you put that away? How did you, as, as the cars got faster and a little bit safer, but mostly just faster, how, did, did your approach to that sort of thing change or did you always just kind of have that, that voice in the back of your head? No, I don't think I, I did. I mean, I had an awareness that it was a dangerous sport back then. It isn't very dangerous anymore. It (laughs) almost seems like it's, you know, no more, it's not as dangerous as football now, but it, it was in the beginning and it's, you know, from the onset of the, the thought of driving cars fast and against one another goes back to the 18. 90s i guess um it's been extremely dangerous and it gradually almost suddenly got safe when they said you know we got to stop killing people we're going to change the tracks we're going to change the cars and 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 uh you know it changed it changed the sport um the thing about that comment you just read back yeah uh, that was the feeling i got the first time I drove that car on a track that had trees because it's going so really so fast. I'd never, you know, a Datsun 510, a Z car, even the 427 Cobra, there's a feeling of vulnerability you get and you just have to get comfortable with it. Um, And now I don't think you have to worry about that so much, but back then I had to, the only other time I can, well, maybe not the only other time, but one other time it, it hit me was at Le Mans where I'd never been there. I always wanted to race there. I played board game with it when I was a kid where you roll the dice and move the car. And, um, now I'm really there in a nine nine thirty five. This is nineteen seventy nine, and yeah. going down that straight because didn't have the chicanes then. Right. And I thought, holy crap, this is fast because <laughs> it's a two lane highway. <laughs> but I got used to it. I got I got used to it, and and then actually, it's a place you can kind of rest a little bit. Yeah. But you you just accept it. You just say. I know it's dangerous and I don't want to dwell on it. I just yeah. doing it. Cause that's what I do. One of the, so one of the, um, one of the things I find really interesting about guys like you, whose career started in the, the skinny tire era and ended in the intense downforce era, you know, it, it's such a massive spread of speed and capability. And Hurley Haywood told me once you, you I think you actually drove with them and, and, in the group 44 cars in one of the, yeah, cars, right? the Jags. It, we drove with them in, in, in the 87 season. Yeah. And he, he told, yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. No. Yeah. I drove with them in, in 87. But he, he with, told me once that the, the whole process, it is Hurley, right. Who is like famously, you know, just to the point direct about things. And then if you ask a dumb question, we'll look at you and not answer it with the look on his face that says you have asked a dumb question. We're moving on. But he told me once that the, the whole process of getting used to significantly faster cars every few years, because he followed the same arc, right? You know, he started mm-hmm. in, in the sixties and ended in, you know, ended in group C cars and, you know, Lamas stuff around the turn of the century. But he, he told me that getting used to significantly faster cars every time, you know, and, and the reason we were talking about it specifically, because we were 
it was a Ren Sport. We were standing next to one of the 917s, you know, the Can-Am cars, the thousand horsepower, nasty turbo things. And, and he said that it was always really interesting, but he also tried not to think about it because he always had that voice in the back of his head saying that, hmm, you might not be able to do this. And he had to shut the voice up because he had to pay attention to the car and think about it. As <laughs> Did you... With each of those leaps, as the cars got noticeably faster, right? You know, a, nine, a 935 is a massively quick thing. It is not like any of the stuff you were in before. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, you know, the prototypes after that. Did you ever have to stop and consciously process, you know, you mentioned hanging on earlier, but process how, what the car needs and think about it? Or is it just kind of boom, 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 we're in it, we're doing it, okay, here. How did, how did that process work for you? <laughs> I can use an example that uh, most people don't even know about. I had a guy, I had no interest whatsoever in drag racing, never been on a drag strip. And a guy at at Shelby's, uh, along with two other guys, built a double-A fuel dragster. And um, a friend of mine, it's all, you know, this is all written somewhere. Um asked why don't you let john drive it and i and i caught a ten dollar bill or a two dollar whatever it was and because my reactions were he said well your reactions are fast enough but i wasn't Wait, trying so to he get just a, like he actually made you do a do the yeah, dollar bill thing yeah it went because my friend said john let let john drive <laughs> it you, you ought to have john drive it and i i was at shelby's i had no experience very little racing experience at that time and so he pulls out, he was going to say, see, you're not fast. You, you're not quick enough for to drive a dragster. So I, I caught the bill that Bob Skinner dropped mm. several times. And so he said, well, you're fast enough. And then they went through a bunch of drivers when they started and they'd yeah. fire him. And one of them was a very, fa- became a very famous driver. Um, um, Michael, Mike Sorokin. Okay. And, um, uh, he won big races with them. They they weren't a winning team. And he came to me one, one day at the, he was a machinist. Skinner was the machinist that owned, who owned the car, built it, uh, built the car. And he said, you still want to drive our car? And I, I never said I wanted to drive it. I just <laughs> caught this bill that he dropped. It wasn't because I wanted to drive a dragster. Anyway, <laughs> Um, I said, yeah, I guess so. So I drove his car for three weeks, a double A fuel dragster. Now that was fast because I'd never driven anything but the Lotus and then the the uh, uh, the, the 427 at Sebring. Did you like it? Were you good at it? Not, like? nah, well, I could have. I think I could have been good at it. I had no, no knowledge of it. And I didn't know how you did it. I mean, it's easy to do. I went and sat in the garage where the car was and practiced the routine of, of shutting the fuel. I can't remember the order now. First thing you do is pop the chute and then, well, let off the gap, throttle, yeah. pop the chute start working a, the drum Oldsmobile drum brakes in the back and, and uh, turn off the mag. And I practice doing that because if you wait too long, you know, you're going, you're gone. 100, yeah, 190 going. miles an hour and right. you have to start stopping, <laughs> but I did it for three weeks and it was okay. I mean, I, 
I didn't have any desire to do it anymore. And I left for New York to race my, my Lotus. Yeah. So I, ne I never went back. And then they went through some more drivers and finally got back to Sorokin and, and beca they became stars. They were called the surfers. Was, was that, was that one of those moments where you're like, screw it. I just need to do it. But was there ever, I mean, you, you said you didn't really like it and you didn't want to do it again, but like, was there a part of you that kind of liked it or does it just, here's the opportunity. Fine. Right. I'm glad I did it. Cause it's something that I, that most people haven't experienced. Yeah. Um, it was something I knew when I got into it, this is going to be this is kind of stupid. <laughs> it's I'm doing something that I'm not even very interested in, Yeah. but I'm doing it with friends and I don't know. Um, doesn't make sense. Yeah. It was just something I did because there it was. It was an offer. Um, you know, it wasn't exactly. Many... Go ahead. It wasn't exactly going over Niagara Falls in a barrel, <laughs> but, you know, it was the unknown, yeah. a double A fuel dragster, with a, a complete unknown. So, you know, I, I do, I just did what came up. It's, it's funny how many people's arcs have it, whether it's a pivotal moment or not. Right. And sometimes it, it, like, it's more remarkable when that moment is pivotal, but so many, so many, so many moments where people get to do remarkable things or do remarkable things or have remarkable opportunities. And it's just because they were in the right place and it's here. And they had, you know, it was, it didn't, they didn't necessarily want to do it. They did not want to do it. It was just there. I mean, you mentioned, you mentioned friends and you talked earlier about, about BRE and you know, you you said you got in the top fuel car with friends, right? Mm -hmm. Because that was with friends and BRE, you you got to be friends with or were friends with so many of those people. How how common is it? You know, so many teams are built around one critical person who then you know leads the charge for everybody, or is a talent you know just a talent gatherer like Shelby was, right? Or you know, in in Pete's case, he was a little bit of Shelby and he was a little bit of kind of the you know the Harry Miller mold of kind of an engineer, kind of a driver, kind of can do a marketer, could do a little bit of everything. And how, how often do, or how often did you see teams that worked that well? You said you never saw anything that worked as well, but how often did you come across groups of people that functioned like that? And, and if, 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 if you ever did, what, what kept them together? What, what made them work? <laughs> It's a hard one to answer. <clears throat> the uh, I was on some good teams beside other than the BRE team. I was on Jim Busby's team driving 962 Porsches and uh, the Lola Mazda at Le Mans. <clears throat> I was on uh, Bob Tullius's team. Yeah. I was on the Electromotive Nissan team. Right. All top teams. Um, but I always... I think looking back, I was a player on those teams. I wasn't the guy on any of them. I was one of, you know, two or three drivers um, or two in some cases. But um, I just never had the, I never had the feeling that I had with the BRE team. I just, it's, and it never could happen again. I don't think I'd ever, I mean, well, it's, it's not going to happen again now, but yeah, I, right. I don't think it ever, ever did. The closest probably was the, uh, the Tullius's, the Jaguar team. 
What did, what did, so Tullius is, I mean, you know, you mentioned Tullius and Busby and like, I mean, it, these are massive names and, and guys known for building organizations that operated a certain way. What did somebody like Tullius have in common with Pete? Because everything you read it on the surface, they're deeply different people. And yet they're still approaching the same problem and the same kinds of failures and the same kinds of things coming apart in the same way at the end of the day. Right. Do you have anything in common with, with Peter? Who, Tullius? Tullius, or Busby, for that matter. I mean, what, what did any of those three guys have in common? The one thing, I just went to a, a party last Saturday at, at Busby's, <laughs> and it was his, celebrating his 50 years in racing. He had a beautiful, he had made his race shop into a museum, and it <laughs> was spectacular. And that isn't Peter, but it isn't. Tullius either, but it's it, those, all three of those people demanded excellence and recognized it. And, and, uh, and they were able to do something that, that I couldn't do. Cause I, you know, I could see it, but I didn't, they have a, they had a, you know, they had a gift for running a race team. Holbert, Bob Al Holbert had a gift yeah. for running a race team. I tried to run my own race team and I'd be driving in a Can-Am car thinking, how am I going to get this engine to the airport after the race? And I thought, that's just not the way you deal with, with running a, a, running a team. And I just wasn't cut out to do that, even though I tried to do it. But those guys had a gift for putting people together and, you know, demanding excellence and getting rid of people that I had to fire a guy once on my Can-Am team and I sweated over all night over, how am I going to get rid of this guy? And the guy was dangerous. I mean, he'd leave stuff loose yeah. and that, and I, you know, I thought this is going to be traumatic for me to fire somebody. And it kind of was. What? Okay. So you, you say you say that all three of those guys demanded excellence. What were they like when they didn't get it? You know, and I don't mean like you're fired, you're out of here, screw it. But how did they react when things went things went you know tits up? What do you? I don't time. know what I'm allowed to say on this show. <laughs> you know, it's my show, and you're John Morton, and I'm holding your okay. book. You can say it. Okay. You well, they kind of turned into assholes. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that was it, it useful it, assholeism or was it like counter? No, it was assholes? useful because that's the way they were wired. Okay, they were very demanding, and they expected you to be demanding too. You don't seem like the kind of person who could turn into an asshole, John. Was, well, I, no, I couldn't. That's why. I, that's why I had so much trouble firing a guy. No, I. <laughs> I wasn't capable of being that way because I'm not that kind of. I'm not defaulting Peter or, or Tullius or, or Busby. That's how you run a successful operation. And they did. So what, or, and the Nissan team too, yeah. you know, the, so when you, when you realized, you know, you, when you realized you weren't get out of it, you said you couldn't do it, but you could see it. How, but you did try, how, how early in that process did you realize you weren't a good fit for running a team when you ran your own team? Probably 1981. So how soon was that after you started? I had raced my own car. Sylvia and I bought a Lola 
Yeah. And uh, that's another story, <laughs> long story. <laughs> um, we ended up buying a Lola and running it as a Can-Am car. Um, in 77. And in so a 80 years. Oh, sorry. Yeah, from 77 and then till 81, I actually had a sponsor. <laughs> I, I, I had never had a real sponsor of any consequence. And I had a sponsor who became a really good friend. And he's, I got him into racing. He it was interested in racing, but he wasn't in it. <laughs> he had a vintage car and, and uh, you know, he admired racers. And so he said, I, I can't, a, a mutual friend hooked me up with him. I had a meeting and he said, I, he wasn't a friend yet. He's just a guy I was trying to get sponsorship from. And he said, yeah. you know, I'll do whatever I can to help you. I'll write pay, uh, letters. And, but the most money I could ever spend out of my pocket is $5,000. And I'm thinking, well, thank you. But I thought that's useless. $5,000. I didn't say that. And I didn't give that impression. I don't think, but he ended up, getting way into it owned his own racing team but first he sponsored my team the can-am team and so i had an obligation to a sponsor and we had a series of engine failures from a legitimate engine builder that wasn't our fault and i felt so guilty i've taken this guy's money and i'm doing a poor job and I, man i just didn't it just didn't sit well with me. He ended up spending, you know, $5,000 turned into probably in excess of a million dollars because wow. he started his, he said, I want to have my own team. So I, you're, I'm sponsoring you, but you can drive for my team. So he bought a, a Lola, a can, a trans, a Lola GTP car and then a March. And then he had Michael Andretti driving. He had John Paul Jr. driving. He had me driving. He had um, Whitney right. Gans driving, a whole bunch of drivers. Yeah. And never won a race. <laughs> and, I, and I've caused this poor guy. He wasn't poor. He was a wealthy guy. But I caused money, though, right? I, he spent a lot of money because I talked him into getting into racing. So I always felt a little guilty about it. See, that's, that's really interesting. I've, again, talked to a lot of team managers, talked to a lot of guys who, you know, spent a lot of other people's money in racing. Most of them don't have that moment where they're like, I felt guilty that things didn't go well. We spent his money. They were just like, oh, yeah, we spent his money. Then we need yeah. to find more money. That's, that's, <laughs> well, that yeah, in that's, particular, that, 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 I, like I, I mean, there were things, there are things about me that were not cut out to do that. To yeah. Do, I think it makes you a better person. So I, I wouldn't stress about it too much. But. Yeah. Well, better person, better people don't necessarily win the Indy 500. Right. Right. I mean, they're not bad people either. And I'm not making no, that no, no. judgment not, at all. Not to disparage anybody. I more yeah. meant like, you, yeah. you know what I meant. So, yeah. so, okay, you know, so, the nice guys finish last. There's something to that. Right. Right. <laughs> so, about 10 years ago, what, you have such an interesting eye on how things work when they don't go well, right? So about 10 years ago, you so you famously, you know, you won the runoffs twice in the 1970s. 
And 10 years ago, you went back. It was the 50th anniversary. There was mm -hmm. this deal where, because it was the 50th anniversary, you know, the runoffs are, you know, people who don't know, they're basically the, the Olympics mm -hmm. sort of, of amateur motor racing. Yeah. And you have to qualify for it. And you, you were allowed to go back like a handful of other people, past champions were allowed to go back without running qualifying races and, and accruing the points. And you went back in a 240Z that had been prepped by some friends and it wasn't perfect. You did remarkably well, given the circumstances. It's, you know, it's a hell of a tough event. It gets tougher every year. You know, people spend an insane amount of money in club racing terms mm -hmm. to go win the thing. And you didn't get a lot of time in the car. There was bad weather, you know, it didn't, it didn't go particularly great. You mm -hmm. did well, given what you had, but you know, so much in road racing hangs. It's like we talked earlier on car and circumstance and so much of the process of running a team or being a driver is planning to try and minimize the chances of other things you can't control going wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. When you went back after so much time, out of a club racing and B, you know, you had essentially retired, you know, roughly a decade before. Did you approach it any differently after kind of being a stint as a normal person? Or was it just a case of shifting back into the same mental gear? And by approach, I mean, things not going right in the car and, you know, racing is so much of racing is bad luck, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't happy with my performance, but I, you know, I, it rained most of the yeah. practice days. So I got very little time in the car and the car was not a BRE car. I mean, it just wasn't, it was, you know, they worked hard and they made it look good and it, and they did a good job and the, and the engine was good, I guess. Um, it was a whole different set of, of rules, you know, the, the the classes were it was a different sort of setup for the what they called e-production i think then yeah. um no i wasn't happy with it and i and i i don't think i drove that well and why i i don't i don't know i was i hadn't been doing it yeah. I'd just been running some, I've, I've, I've run a lot of vintage races until yeah. just very recently, but, um, I, I don't know, but, you know, I was very disappointed partly in the way I drove and partly in the way I felt about it and partly in the car. I've, I've spent, you know, I've done a bit of club racing and, and, and I, I'm one of those people that sits there in the car and when I make a mistake, even if that mistake, you know, I can look down at the box and the mistake cost me two tenths or whatever, you know, I look down at the mistake and I think about that mistake too long. And then that causes more mistakes. And then I dwell on that. And then I get out of the car and I spend a lot of time thinking things about how many mistakes I'm making. And when you, you said you drove poorly, did you, when that happens, because there are weekends I've gotten out of the car and then known things didn't go well and then kind of analyzed it a week or two later and realized that things went worse than I thought. And I was not I was not doing what I should have been for a bunch of reasons. Did you know in the car when it, when it wasn't that you weren't getting, getting out of yourself what you needed, or did that take time to set in? You know, but it, I had never driven the car before at all. Really? You didn't, yeah. you didn't test it or anything? No. Wow. No, just drove it there. And, um, the guys worked hard, you know, they, 
made a big deal of painted it yeah. like a BRE car. And um, I just, it just, you know, I love the track. I love Elkhart. Like it just, I don't know. It's just one of those things that very little practice time yeah. knowing what the car could do and understanding it is, is something that I didn't know. I mean, I did it with a 427 Cobra, but this is, <laughs> that was 50, 60 years before whatever it was, right. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, you know, I don't beat myself up over it because I know I could have done better if I'd had, you know, the a proper, uh, team that I had worked with for a while. Yeah. And Which is not to disparage it, those guys, but it's just how it works. No, right? no, I'm not, not disparaging them because the car, the race was won by a 240Z. Yeah. So that's, it, it's so interesting, right? Because there is so much that separates club racing from pro racing and yet they are no different on so many levels. And, and those levels are really the, the things that come down to, the things that don't have anything to do with money, right? It's all, it's all about the stuff you can't control. And the fact mm -hmm. that, you know, you can like Lamar, right? You went to Lamar something like nine times between 79 and 98. And I wrote down that, forgive me if I get this wrong, you were on the podium three times, but you also DNF three times, right? Your team did. And there were a bunch um, of different. What's the, the, yeah. The first time in the 969, 935 the engine blew up halfway through the race right which, not which when i was driving it but it doesn't matter who was driving it ted right. fields owned the car and he was one of the he and milt minner were the co-drivers um and then the next two years i drove a ferrari a north american racing team and we would have won at least one of those and one the driver one of the drivers crashed yeah. late in the race and the next year the, tra the transmission started packing up and uh so we still finished ninth overall but we would have won our class had it not happened but you know so these aren't do dnfs like horrible dnfs they're painful yeah um but it still and happens then, yeah and, and yeah. so does that does that feeling ever get easier or is it always just we were in it and now i'm carrying my gear back to the rental car and now we are not in it. Like it, mm -hmm. does it, does it ever change or is, is it always the same thing? There are races that are more painful than others, you know, <laughs> looking back and it doesn't, they don't have to be important races. They were just important to you or yeah. to me in this case. Um, I still agonize. I, I mean, when I say agonize, I'm not talking about, I don't really lose sleep over it, <laughs> but a go-kart race I ran in 1960, 60. Serious? That's amazing. That's so yeah. great. I, That's so great. Yeah. I still agonize over that. Cause I was, I'd never was in a competitive cart at this time and they had a big labor day race. And I happened to start in the front for some reason. I can't remember if we drew straws or whatever. And I just pulled away from the field. I was, and my chain came off <laughs> and could have won that race. 
<laughs> but my I, mean, chain. I that, mean, it's worth thinking about now, you know, it's, it's seriously, it's, it's important. We relitigate this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. Amazing. I, that's no, so I'm not, I'm just using an absurd example of, right, right, right. of something that I've never totally gotten yeah. over. Right. Right. <laughs> I, I remember okay. I that's not I'm over the go-kart race. Okay. I I had a um I, I, I was in middle school. I never spent any time in carts. I didn't get into club racing until after college when I basically, you know, mm-hmm. did really dumb things like sell my couch to buy tires and basically yeah. got a season and a half of of in, in a very uncompetitive car and then ran completely out of money and you know, did the whole other thing. But I I got I tested a cart in I want to say it was middle school or something. It's a friend of a friend's dad had a cart and he put it in me. And I remember sitting in the thing, and the track had a handful of lefts and a handful of rights. And the cart, for whatever reason, the carts are like setups, crazy complex in carts, even as simple as it is. And I ever, the cart turned really really well to the left, and it turned extremely poorly to the right. It was massive understeer. And I remember getting out of it and thinking, oh. Oh, I uh, I must not be good at left at right turns. I, this must be me. This must be yeah. my fault. Yeah. And then you know, until for ten years, until I like actually started learning how the sport works, like, yeah. it stuck with me. And it was like, oh, that is my weak point. I'm awful. <laughs> it's just yeah. it stuff sticks in your head. It's funny, but so I, I, I don't you should know have been funny. an oval track driver then, because <laughs> they they're good at left turns. <laughs> I, so a, a lot of, uh, one of the things that I, I kind of want to end and we're almost out of time, but a, a lot of drivers don't ever get tired of it, right? They retire, they keep going back, you know, guys like Tony Stewart or Robbie Gordon, who just cannot, you cannot keep them out of a car. I think like Tony mm-hmm. Stewart just started drag racing, right? And the reason he gave like, weeks, literally weeks ago, and the reason he gave was something like, um, well, I'm too old for IndyCar and NASCAR makes me angry and I want to keep doing something at the top level and I'm fat. So this is the reason <laughs> this is what I can do. But some guys are flipped, right? They get out of it and they are hard done. They just don't have any interest in doing it. Yeah. And you obviously still enjoy being in a car and, you know, historic stuff is fun, but that's, that's different from going wheel to wheel for tenths in a club environment or in a pro environment. Do you... Do you have any, do you miss that? Do you have any desire to scratch that itch again? I mean, set aside whether you could or couldn't, right? Is that a thing you would do if you could? Yeah, I, I would. Um, but at my age, it's, sure. I mean, it's foolhardy to think you could compete with a young person. At, I'm 80 years old. Of course. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it. but I, the reason I guess, um, people say, why did you race or what, yeah. why, why did you do it? Why do you, why did you choose that? And I jokingly kind of jokingly say, because I've avoided work my whole life. <laughs> and so I played for a living in a way, but it, you know, they all think they, they think it's fun to do that. It isn't much fun to race. It's fun to race after you won, right. but the actual act is Probably it's probably not fun to be in an NFL game and and get your ass kicked. Right. Um, and racing, it's it's too serious to be fun at the at the top level, at the higher levels. It's not it's until, not really fun. Until you got to the too serious to be fun thing, I was gonna say you would have made a really good writer because it's not really any fun when you're doing it. And everybody likes having written, but nobody likes writing. Yeah. You made, and you have a decent degree of self-loathing. So you, you would have made a great journalist. <laughs> I don't think I have exactly self-loathing. 
you but know what I I, did, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, uh, you know what I meant? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the, but, as far as writing goes, you know, I wrote, I did write a book that would have never written a book. I never yeah. wanted to. And a guy asked me, uh, he asked Sylvia to write a book on Shelby, not a book, a, a story mm-hmm. for a magazine. And she said, I didn't, I didn't know Shelby well enough. You could ask John, maybe he'll try it. And so he did. He and I said, I'll give it a shot. I'm not, I don't know how to write a story, but I wrote the story. Yeah. And um, it came out in a magazine that you probably never even heard of called American Driver. It was a nice, glossy magazine. Okay. Um, and it was a story on Carol Shelby. And about a month, maybe two months later, after it had come out, um, a guy who was the editor, uh, publisher at motor books text emailed me that i just read a story you wrote in a in a an american driver and um, i really enjoyed it and i wondered if you'd expand it could expand it into a book and i i said no i i said i live with a writer i'm not gonna i'm not gonna go through that but i i mean he he tried to talk me into it and and uh, then he said well could you just do me a do a quick uh, outline yeah. what you'd do if you did write a book. So I wrote down I, literally 25 minutes. I made it, I sketched out six chapters this, I do this, that, and then sent it to him. And he said, looks good. Now I just got to find the money. <laughs> and almost over two years went by and I thought, great, I'm not going to write a stupid book. And then he said, we, we we're ready to go on the Shelby book if you'll do it. And I, and I, and he paid me to do it. I mean, I got paid. It's a good book. You did a nice yeah. job with it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, I'm proud that I did it, but, and I actually enjoyed doing it. So it wasn't because all I did was write my life story kind yeah. of, and some observations it was i couldn't like what sylvia does just make something up and write a novel even though they're predicated on you know her own experiences um, but not not the carrot that was journalism really more yeah. than it's it's funny having you know i'm a i'm a writer for a living and a you know a, a racer by hobby but it's uh, funny how much the, the parts of my brain that require me to look at something I've done and go, that is not good enough. You have to pull it apart and figure out why mm-hmm. it, it turned out to be very useful in the car. The part that isn't is the whole, you know, neurotic self analytical pull apart, sarcastic, yeah. I don't like myself thing, but um, yeah. it's, it's funny how much intersection there is. I, I'm glad you enjoyed it. it. A lot of people, I know a lot of people have written books who hate the process, but Sylvia are- hates Sylvia does. <laughs> she hates the process. <laughs> I mean, she's miserable when she's doing it. I mean, but it's something she, she had to do. Like yeah. I had to race and she had right. to write books. Right. And now I'm 80 and she's 82. And we both know we're not going to write any, she's not going to write a lot more bo- books and I'm not going to do a lot more racing. And you just say, okay, so what now? Wait to die. <laughs> Come on. No, and I don't mean I don't mean it quite like that, but I'm trying to trying to put it in the context of your life. You know, when you stop doing what you do. Like if you're a writer, when you stop writing, unless you just get sick of it, 
but if you want to keep doing it and you get to the point where you you feel like you can't do it anymore or the opportunities to do it aren't aren't there you know, yeah you have in a way you have a reckoning sort of it's it's interesting i never thought about the the she has to thing right there's a line in writing that you know a lot of actually a lot of college and high school counselors can tend to spit out mine did and then i turn i found out a couple of years later it's actually kind of a it's a cliche it's a trope but the the line is something like you know if you can do literally anything else do it you know if if, if you should only write if you have to if you can't yeah. not and you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that like, there's a button in my brain and I have to push it. I have to do it. You know, I have to get that and get the pellet. And if I write, mm -hmm. I feel better. And I've, now that you mentioned it, I've met a lot of drivers who are the same way. Right. You know, I, I club race cause I love it, but I, mm -hmm. if I didn't get to do it for the rest of my life, I would probably find something else. I'd be sad. Yeah. So many, so many drivers who end up with real careers mm -hmm. have just, you know, they, they have that button. They have to, yeah. have to do it. Well, Sylvia, was a creative writing professor and she would try to it taught try to let her students know that they should find some other line of work <laughs> because they're doomed to right. to they're you they're can not, say it yeah <laughs> they're do, doomed to failure right, and, right. and unhappiness <laughs> And she knew because she she's been doing it. Yeah. She wrote her first book, started her first book when she was 13 years old, and she's working on one upstairs right now. But I mean, 82. that's that's the it's the same thing with racing, right? Yeah, you know, it's the are, same. Not by the odds, everybody's going to lose except you know one person in the field. I mean, it's I never thought yeah. about it like that. That's that's so yeah. funny. Maybe that's why I like it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, John, we've we've got time for one more thing. There's a a thing we do at the end of every episode with everybody. Um, it's just one question, mainly because the answer always says a lot about, you know, uh, who you are and how you, how you see the world. So I'm going to ask you one question. I don't think too much and uh, just spit out an answer. Sound good? Just what? I'm just going to ask you one question. Yeah. Don't think too much. Just spit out an answer. Does that sound okay? Okay. Okay. What's the first thing that goes through your head when things go wrong? That's a, um, that's a, it could be a four letter word. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I, I did a thing similar to what you're doing after I had that accident in the scarab yeah. at Monterey. That was at, 10, 12 years ago, right? Or no longer ago. It was when 2010. Was I think you rolled 2000, it, right? Yeah. Several yeah. times. Yeah. And it's perfect again. And I've tested it since, but um, <laughs> it's not going to race anymore. I don't. So things worth millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. But the one thing a guy asked me, um, somebody, the, the subject came up, uh, what's, what will be your last word? <laughs> And I said, well, when that happened, shit was, I said, shit. And so I guess that at that point, that was going to be my last Your word, last but word. I survived. So right. it wasn't. Well, on, on that note, I, I think we, I think we're out of time. Thank you, John. Okay. This has been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. Well, I enjoyed it. It's fun. Thanks. It's also easy to <laughs> sit here and talk.